I want to pray first of all uh, for this time. So will you join me in prayer? Father, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to bring um, a sermon based on the scriptures as we hear each and every week. I thank you uh, personally for the way in which you used Andrew's sermon last week to speak to me personally about morning routine. I thank you, Father, for the correction that you brought through him in my own life. And I know, Lord, that uh, the words that are spoken today, even though that they won't, they won't be perfect nor given perfectly, I know, Lord, that you are able to use them. And, uh, Father, we know that it's important for us to be able to be nourished by a living word that is founded on the living word. We thank you for the scriptures and we thank you that they contain spiritual truth and along with that spiritual power. We thank you that the devil does not like a Bible to be opened. And we pray that our homes would be homes where there are open Bibles because they're being read and used. And the significance spiritually of the power object that it is would be recognized within our lives. Father, we thank you, however, that they point to the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, your son. And Father, we are so grateful that you love to such a degree that you would release him to come in human form, to restore life to what it should be. And we pray that today, Lord, uh, all the influences of culture and everything else would be put in their rightful, in their rightful place. And that we would just know and hear a word that is clear. Clear to our minds that you have blessed with a capacity to be transformed and to know your will and purpose. And clear also, Lord, to our spirits and our souls that we might know your tangible presence and we might also know what it means to have peace before you. We thank you that as people who believe in Christ Jesus and having just received the elements of bread and wine, I thank you, Lord, that we should now sit and stand before you with a clear conscience and a peaceful heart, irrespective of our circumstances and the difficulties, the difficulties we may be facing. Amen. I want to read uh, Psalm 32. It's one of a number of psalms that really points to the fact that life, that life um, needs to be lived um, with a repentant heart before God. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. See, even in the Old Testament, we have examples of the power of forgiveness. And its place. Blessed is the man or woman against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, the psalmist says, my bones wasted away 
through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Description of the effect of sin. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. That's a way of saying, pray while you can, because in the midst of panic, you may not know how to pray. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is God's response. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding. Just turn and say to someone, this is my mischief making up here. Just my sense of humor. Turn and say to someone, are you a horse or a mule this morning? Come on, you can do better than that. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Now, I just want to stop for a moment. And, and just make a comment, which is unrelated to the sermon. Uh, Martin and Ros Richard are here this morning, have been beating Cambodia for a couple of weeks. And well, I'm hoping that in the near future we'll hear an account of what they've been doing. But would you just welcome them back? Because I know a lot of you have been praying for them. And uh, it would be good to hear an account of what they've, they've been doing. Let's turn now to the focus of today, Romans 8.28 which I know for a lot of people is a fairly famous and favorite sort of passage. I'm just going to be looking primarily at the one verse, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I'm just leaving it at that, at this point in time. The title of this sermon comes from an, an encounter that I had uh, about two weeks ago on a Wednesday night, when we don't have home group, I'm actually uh, playing tennis uh, because we've got other things on. There's a prophetic course that I think is on this week too. Is it on during the holidays? On a Wednesday night? Yeah, it's on this Wednesday. Uh, yeah, well, that's what um, Adam just said. Might need to look at the uh, website to make sure. Um, but we, um, I, I play tennis uh, near my house and um, I've been playing with a lot of 30, 40-year-old, 50-year-old men who have no idea of respect for their elders and uh, have been getting thrashed all around the court and so on and so on. And the majority of the people playing are actually um, not Caucasian. There are a, a high percentage of them are Indian, um, but also South African, Africa, uh, uh, American, South America and so on. And it's, it's been interesting because there is a, a history of people who are playing with this group. 
And four or five of them have been playing for maybe 20 years, 10, 15, 20 years together. And so after the game, they secret away. Um, they tend to leave by half past eight, after about an hour and a half, and they, they go up to the local pub for a drink. And initially, um, I hadn't been asked to go with this select group, but a couple of them decided that they should take pity on me and suggested that I come. And so I've been going and having a ginger ale and sitting uh, with them for about best part of an hour, probably, after the tennis. And a couple of weeks ago, there was only one guy and myself who went. And as I went, uh, we were sitting and talking, and this is a man who is uh, a practicing Roman Catholic um, and who, uh, now that he's discovered what I do and regrets inviting me to the pub, uh, uh, what I did, not what I do, what I did, um, because originally he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I was an accountant for a while, and, oh, I'm an accountant. And that sort of has created conversation. But this particular guy increasingly in the presence of others that he's known for a long time, is talking more about his faith because I'm yet to go to have a drink with them after the, uh, the tennis without them somehow focusing on godly things. And it's been, I haven't had to do much. It's just opened up and so then I will make a comment. The other night, a man came in, a quite distinguished-looking man. He came in and he came over and he, and he said hello and started talking to the guy I was with and um, I discovered that this guy used to uh, play with this group for a long period of time, but he's now he's in foreign affairs and he's now at a posting in the Solomon Islands. And so I was introduced, and I was introduced as Pete used to be an accountant. And, and so I said, for a little while, and then I became uh, a Christian minister. And the guy looked at me. Couldn't work out the scenario and so on. But as the conversation unfolded, he obviously felt the need to justify himself. And so he said, you know, I used to go to a, a, a church in Adelaide. I won't say what denomination it was. I used to go to this church, and um, as can sometimes be the case in a conservative evangelical setting, he said, I went all through my teenage years. Uh, I went as a young boy. My parents took me, and then they stopped going, but I kept going. And he said, but there, I, I, I never heard anything other than how sinful I was and how much I needed to repent. And as a consequence, he said, I felt so condemned all the time, in the end I decided I wouldn't bother going. And so I don't go, and I don't need to. Now, I could analyse that. I could say a few words, but I just looked at him and I said, you know, the really sad thing about that is there is so much more to it than sin. That's all I said. And then we went on to temporal matters. So the title of today's sermon is simply this. There's so much more to it than sin. Amen. We went on to temporal matters. If I was to ask you right now, what's the definition of temporal, and said I'm going to pick someone out, how many of you, if I then said, put your hand up if you don't know, would be honest? Yeah, I thought so. I thought so. So in order to just ease your fear that you're going to be the one asked, I will tell you what tempor temporal means. The Cambridge uh, International Dictionary uh, defines it as this. Temporal is relating 
to practical matters or material things. And the way in which it's used in a phrase could be like this. Temporal power and wealth are more important than a spiritual promise of life after death in today's world. So you're having not just a definition there and an example, but you're also having a hint. What's the temporal? What's the other thing? Temporal or eternal? This world or the next? Let's look at Romans 8 again. 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. There's little doubt that this particular verse has become a very popular favorite. Uh, that's not right. Has become a favorite of contemporary Christians. But there's a word of, word of caution in order when we consider this verse. Care is needed in its application. Firstly, I want to unpack the verse in its context. Whenever you look at a scriptural passage, whenever you hear a sermon, you've got to ask yourself, is this true, not just to this verse, but to the whole of scripture? I want to put it in its context, and then I want to uh, suggest a couple of things we should be mindful of when we actually look at it. In Romans chapter 7, the one before this one, Paul, the apostle, shows that life without the grace of Christ is made up of defeat and misery and bondage to sin. But now in chapter 8, he's moved beyond that and he tells us that spiritual life, which is characterized by freedom from condemnation, somehow the guy at the pub had not actually got to the cross. He'd heard a lot about sin, but somewhere he had not realized that he himself needed to be forgiven. That's his issue. And when you're very successful, as he obviously is, that becomes a problem. Paul, I'll get you to just turn that off now, okay? That becomes a problem. <clears throat> Freedom from condemnation... Victory over sin and fellowship with God is what comes to us through union with Christ Jesus as we allow the presence of the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. That's basically what Paul's saying in chapter 8. There is a freedom. There's so much more than sin. We don't have to live in condemnation and misery. We can deal with it and we can actually come into a place in God where we have fellowship with him and where we're allowed to actually <clears throat> enjoy the things of life as well as have a focus in the purpose of life. Praise the Lord for that. And so by receiving and following the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying in this chapter, we are delivered from sin's power and we're led onward to a place of final glorification in Christ. That's what this verse is about. This verse is about how do we become more like Christ? <clears throat> how do we allow God to work in our lives in such a way the goodness, the goodness of God himself becomes evident in who we are? It's not a verse 
about saying, God, will you fix up all the mess that I've created through the decisions I've made in my life? It doesn't excuse us from responsibility in daily living. In our culture, people don't like things to be tough. We're looking for easy things, particularly in Western culture. I was playing tennis on Friday, playing quite well, I might add, um, because I was playing with older guys, not younger guys. And, and I was playing, and this group knows uh, what I did, and that has caused some issues among some of them, and has caused some issues for me in being able to know how to handle profanity regularly. And uh, I was playing, and I, I, I don't know about you, and you probably haven't realised, those of you who have known me for any length of time, but I have a, a competitive streak that occasionally uh, comes out in things like sport. And so we were playing tennis, and um, uh, I hit a particularly solid backhand volley right through a guy. Uh, it was past him before he realised, and, and uh, just turned and calmly walked back to my place. And... Um, one of them looked at me and said, that's not particularly Christian. <laughs> and so I turned to him. There was real anointing on the court, I tell you. Because immediately I had a response. And so I turned to him and I said, where does it say that Christian faith means you have to be soft? And he looked and he just went, oh. Fair point. Who is the toughest person that you know? Exactly. Exactly. We worship someone who knows how to do the hard yards, is not soft, doesn't excuse himself, and doesn't excuse us. Wants the best for us. And if you have a child or you've seen children grow, you know that the only way they're going to get the best is with parents who actually genuinely care enough to make a difference in their lives by bringing in wisdom, by bringing in correction, by not going with the latest fad simply because the parent has too much insecurity and needs the child to like them. Jesus is not a wallflower and he's not soft. And he doesn't expect us to be either. He expects us to be loving. He expects us to have integrity. He expects us to be truthful. He expects us to be able to look at our own issues clearly and not shy away from them as we seek his leading and guidance. Much of which we'll find in the scriptures. It's not rocket science to know that as a Christian, we have, have no option but to forgive. So I gave, forgave the Raiders yesterday afternoon after I'd watched them play. It took a while. You see, in the world, all too often, even within Christian circles, we're looking for an easy way. We're looking for the lotto win. We're looking for the shortcut. But genuine character, genuine Christian love comes from hard work. It comes from being before the Lord 
time and time and time again. It comes from recognising that God must love us so much that he'd send his son to go through that in order that we might be restored in relationship with him. Don't ever think God's going to be soft on you. He won't be. He'll be loving. He'll be kind. He might be gentle. But there'll be times where we need to recognize he will be a loving father bringing the discipline that we need in our lives. And he often does that through other people. For example, let's look at verse 28 and and look at some of the things. Remembering that the normal Christian life is that we live with a sense of God's purpose and call. In our lives, we live with an ability to laugh, to serve, to repent, to have a freedom because we know his purpose in our lives. Let's look at the word word work. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What does that mean? Well, the Greek word is synagogue. Which, from which I think we get our word synergy. A definition of synergy is this. The combined power of a group of things when they are working together is greater than the total power achieved by each working separately. Got it? So when you have a fire fireman turn up to your house and it's ablaze, You want not there to be one fireman working here and one fireman working there by themselves without communication. You want them focusing together on where they need to be working. And they want that too because they have more effect in what they're doing. It's the same in Christian life. Why is it better to be here on a Sunday worshipping God? Because together there is a stronger presence of God than if you're at home by yourself. Did you get it all counted? Do we need to take up a second offering? A second offering, right, okay. So that word, a word for work, synergy, synergy, means in the Greek to work together, to work with, to cooperate. And you get a hint of it in the ESV translation. For those who love God, all things work together for good. So he's not talking about anyone. He's talking about someone who's deeply committed to the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives. Let's go on a little bit with that. Let's stop for a moment and and recognize that within our world, there is a whole stack of uh, issues associated with people actually admitting that they've done something wrong or that they're in need. Look at the Banking Royal Commission. Who is surprised? Disappointed? Absolutely. But having dealt with a few banks, all of us would say, hmm. But it's not just the banks. You could say similar things about every occupation because at heart there is an issue in human existence with sin. That's why I referred you to Psalm 32. Even the Old Testament understood the importance of confession. And to just give you a little bit of a sidetrack, but it actually is important, because most of us don't understand the nature of sin and how to deal with it. In Psalm 32, verses 1 to 4, talk about sin 
operating in four different ways. One of them is that it makes you feel unwell. There can be issues associated with health. But the clear teaching is, because by verse 5, you see uh, the turning point is that the psalmist, perhaps David, King David, got to the point where he no longer denied the sin that was operating. He actually made confession of it to God. He came clean with God. He became honest. And in doing that, there was a turning point. Look how it ends. The steadfast love of God is there. <clears throat> and so in this particular uh, first part of this psalm, you'll find that three, three, different, uh, three different aspects of sin are clearly um, expressed or described. The first one is this. With the word sin, it's the outward act that's signified uh, by the word sin. You see, James chapter 1 tells us that uh, many people are tempted. Just don't ever say that God tempts you. Temptation is not the issue. The issue is your response to the temptation. And when you nurture it, when you entertain it, then, and you actually carry out that act, whatever it is, do something against the will of God that injures someone else, and sin does that then what happens is that that becomes something of disobedience within our own lives. So sin can be the act. The temptation is not the sin. Second thing we'll find is that the rebellious disobedience when we do what we shouldn't be doing is a transgression or described as a transgression. So sin is one word, transgression is a deeper word, and an even deeper one or uh, one that reflects the effect of sin the effect of sin is not as much so much outward as it is inward. My sin can affect you, and vice versa. But the the other issue is internally it affects me. Internally it affects you because of what you've done and what I've done. And that inward corruption that comes with sinning, particularly when you transgress on a consistent basis, is called iniquity in the eyes of God. So there in that psalm you've got three things: sin. Transgression, iniquity. Three different words that are used to actually describe the nature of sin. But if I was to ask you that before I just told you, how many of us would have any idea? You see, the scriptures have a lot of things. I was quite impacted, as I said in my prayer, with Andrew's sermon last week. The bit where he talked about his routine in the morning. Coffee, look at the news. Right? Do you know 85% of people who have smartphones or uh, computers or uh, tablets and that sort of stuff, 85% of people within five minutes of waking up in the morning have opened them up to look at them, according to statistics that I've come across. And my pattern has been similar. I would do my devotions after I'd got up, had a look at the news, had breakfast and go and do the devotions, and I suddenly realised, what am I doing in his sermon? I felt conviction. I felt the Lord saying, what are you doing? You're putting the daily events and affairs ahead of my word. And I, I, so I spent some time repenting. And this week, I'm trying to reestablish a pattern in my life whereby the priority is that communion with God to start the day. Just as the priority is to come and be with the Lord's people on a Sunday morning and the first day of the week. To not see it as something that I'll fit into my routine if I have time. Or there isn't a better option. 
That psalm tells us that our sin is covered, cancelled and cleansed by a holy, righteous Lord when we come to the Lord in confession. And verse 6b and 7 tells us that by repentance one comes into a new sphere of divine protection amid the storms of life. And this is the issue with Romans 8.28. All too often Christians think that now that we're Christian, we're going to have this huge protection that happens. Tell that to Jesus. Tell that, tell that to the Apostle Paul. We do have protection. We do have grace. But we are not taken out of the tests and the trials of life. God is working good when we are living according to his purpose. I know uh, I just looked at the time and I'm going to go a little over. Uh, I'm quite happy if you need to leave. Even if there's only one person left, I'll still be preaching. Because I want to take this just a little bit further and not cut it too short in a couple of places. So let's go on a little bit further and looking at the, the phrase that, uh, that comes with working together. When we're working together with God according to what we want. No, no, according to his purpose. According to his purpose. The purpose that he has in a circumstance. Not just what we want to have happen. God works with us when we cooperate with his purpose. And it's very interesting. Turn to Acts 11.23. The word that's used for purpose is prothesin. And in Acts 11.23, we see an example of it when Barnabas is sent up to the church at Antioch to see what in the world God was doing in that church. It says... Um, they sent Barnabas. When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's the same word. Steadfast purpose. King James Version says, cleave with all your heart to the Lord. But that particular, <clears throat> that particular word uh, can also mean not just <clears throat> a steadfast purpose, it is actually the word that's used of the showbread in the Old Testament. It means literally a setting forth. A setting forth. What is the thing that God has set forth as his purpose in the scriptures? Jesus himself says in Matthew, in Matthew 12, Mark 2, Luke 6, and the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 9, they all refer to the showbread as the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence. And I want to labor with this a little bit because it's, it's got a hidden meaning for us in this verse, Romans 8.38. In the Old Testament uh, and the Sabbath practices of the synagogues in Jesus' day, 12 loaves representing each tribe were set in order every Sabbath before the Lord. The loaves symbolize the fact that on the basis of the sacrificial atonement of the cross, this comes from Vine's expository dictionary of uh, Greek New Testament words, that on the basis of the sacrificial atonement of the cross, which is echoed all the way through the Old Testament, believers are accepted before God and are nourished by him in the person of Christ. The showbread was partaken of by the priests, representing the nation. But 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that priesthood is now a right for all Christian 
men and women. We are priests. A holy people set aside for the purposes of God. So what is being said in the use of this word, prothesin, I believe, is that he, Jesus, the living bread, is the nourishment of all. And where he is in heaven, so are we. And God's purpose is that those who believe in him would be nourished by him as if they are already in heaven. And this is the beauty of the Christian message. That all the resources of Christ that he has gained and won in heaven are available to us each and every day. The presence of God with us. The help of God in all circumstances. Our position, according to Paul in Ephesians, is that we're seated with him in heavenly realms. And if we're seated with God himself, and the authority of God is allowed to operate in our lives, and we welcome that authority, then goodness comes. Read Psalm 128. One of my, my favorite psalms. The blessings of God down generations. You still with me at the moment? I've only got five more pages to go. I've done two. Not really. The other word is agathon, good. Sorry, so the purpose of God, I believe, here, the working of good is that he will take all of us into that place where we are nourished and fed and nurtured by the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. He's wanting us to become increasingly, as he goes on to say in the next few verses, increasingly like Jesus himself. Willing to die to ourselves. Willing to not just have our own way all the time. Willing to be obedient in ways of integrity before others and before God. The word agathon is the word for good. And it describes that which being good in its character or constitution is beneficial in its effect. Think about that for a moment. Something could be good. But it doesn't mean it's going to be beneficial for you in that moment. Who are the people who love God? If you look at verse 1 of chapter 8 of Romans, it says very clearly, they are the people who are in Christ Jesus. This is a very small group. This is not anyone who feels like it. This is... A, Reminiscent of people who genuinely pursue God and serve and love him all the days of their lives from the moment they encounter him. And I say that knowing I've actually led people to the, to the Lord on their deathbed hours before they died. Those who love God, those who are in Christ Jesus... They're called the chosen. They're called the elect. They're called the people who really pursue the ways of God. See, God can't be mocked. He knows the sincerity of our hearts. He knows the focus of our lives. And he wants us to be people who pursue him with passion. Not just Occasionally give him lip service. We're talking here about the very purpose of your life 
is to serve God, to love him, and become increasingly like Jesus Christ. Enjoying all the fullness of life that that brings. A Presbyterian minister, so he'd be a good Calvinist, I think. D. Stuart Briscoe, in a series of commentaries that I have, uh, is a man from the United States. He makes this comment about this particular verse in Romans 8, 28. He said, this verse must only be applied to those who clearly exhibit a deep sense of the call of God in their lives, demonstrating a love of God, a love for God, by a life of obedience. People who love others, even when they don't deserve to be loved. People who speak a word of truth and integrity, knowing that they're going to be mocked and abused for it. God bless Israel Folau. This verse is not to be seen as a grounds for believing that everything will come out in the wash. Because God has committed himself to sort out the mess of our lives and relieving us of the consequences of our actions. God has eternal rather than temporal good in mind. He's more interested in you and me being the right end product than pandering to our own weakness and softness. His purpose is far grander than alleviating the unpleasantness of the present or a guarantee of plain sailing under clear skies in the foreseeable future. We may never have an easy life following the Lord Jesus Christ, but we'll have a blessed life and a rewarding life. God is in the good business inverted commas, of making redeemed sinners like their elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even a cursory glance at the way in which God the Father exposed his son to the realities of life and death should be sufficient to remind us that we can expect the same kind of processes to work in our lives. Within the individual Sorry, with the identical and the ultimate result that we conform to him. We become more like him. So let me conclude with an example, two examples. What does this all mean? I remember back in the 80s, a, the wife of a well-known charismatic preacher and pastor in Canberra, who was well-known and here for a long time. I remember uh, we invited the wife to come to the church that I was associating with, and the wife started to say how, and shared a testimony of how when she first came to Canberra, she found people very unfriendly, and she didn't feel that she could trust them, and, and so she built up a whole stack of walls around about her, herself. And I remember her saying, that one day she realized she was very lonely and wondered why. And God told her. And so she prayed. She, she repented. She said, Lord, please forgive me. Please, please take away these walls and, and, and make everything good again. And God responded to her and said, yes, you're forgiven. But you built those walls brick by brick. You take them down. 
brick by brick. What we often want is God to go like a genie in a lamp, sort of everyone else out so that you feel okay. The other example. Other example is this. <clears throat> and I, I think this is a wonderful example. A couple of decades ago, uh, a, a young lady who was the wife of a missionary told a hushed congregation about the ways that she had robbed her employer of thousands of dollars of merchandise while she was a student in a Bible school. She had admitted her sin. She had sought his forgiveness. She had learned, learned to paint so effectively that her earnings from her paintings paid off her debt and, as a consequence, led her employer to Christ merely by her conduct. It's called integrity. It's called the ways of God. When someone asked how she could be so open about her past after the service, she looked at them and threw her arms wide. And with a great smile, she said, when all is forgiven, there is nothing to hide. And where there is nothing to hide, there is nothing to fear. This verse is not that we would have an easy life and that everything would be put in order. This verse is that we would, in all things, allow God to work his ways and his benefit, allow God to so nourish us with, with the presence of uh, Christ's spirit in our lives that we are able to be a benefit and good in everything. That we are able to follow his will and his leading and his ways in our lives, irrespective about what any, any other cultural opinion is saying. You see, there's so much more to life in Christ than dealing with sin. Amen. So uh, I'm going to really go out on a limb here. Um, I'm going to ask someone a question, and he's very entitled to say no. But um, I'm wondering, uh, Martin, I know you play by ear beautifully. Are you able to play on the keyboard for us? Um, not how great is our God, but um, how great thou art. Thank you. I've had a, a bit of a memory blank. I'm having a senior's moment at a crucial time. So, would you be able to do that, do you think? Thank you. And I, I'm just going to open the uh, altar at the front. There are people wanting... Um, uh, a lot of you don't know, but Martin is very gifted in this area. Um, 
And uh, a lot of you um, may just want to come and pray. If you're wanting prayer from the prayer team, stand up when you come forward. Uh, if you're sitting on a chair or kneeling, no one will come and ask you for prayer. But you know, this is the start of the week. And we want to set the right tone with God for the whole of the week and be a blessing to others. Because that's what we're called to be. Yes. I'm going to pray and then I'll let Martin play. Would you stand as we end in prayer? Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to come and to bless you and to worship you. We thank you for the nourishment of your presence in our lives, Lord Jesus, by the person of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that as we go into this week, that, Lord, we would know not only your healing touch, but we would know how to be a blessing to you and to others, how to work cooperatively with synergy with you and with each other. Lord, may we not leave today with any unfinished business before you. May you be the one that we turn to immediately in every moment where there is a need. And Father, I bless these folk today with the peace of Christ Jesus that's beyond all understanding. And may they also know with the Apostle Paul that they can do all things. Cope with a lot, cope with the little. They can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. 